you're a doctor in the house. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. Shh. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Advanced Medicine officially underway. We did some advanced constitutional medicine this weekend, Dr. Batar. You would have loved being with us. My good good buddy, Michael Badnarik, author of Good to be King, a foundation of our constitutional freedom, was uh, the guest speaker. Of course, he's a key speaker there. And then we went out to the gun range outdoors with everybody to do some Second Amendment marksmanship training. Uh, it was just right up your alley. Well, that sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. Did you guys get to shoot off some of the, uh, the more... Uh Historic weapons. I think you said something. You wouldn't have access to some stuff. From yeah. Like he, well, he yeah. had. He has some. You know, seriously. Uh, I won't c- call them colonial style guns. It's not like the uh, powder guns and things like that. There's one cowboy gun that I really love, and it's you know it's barreled on the outside like a stop sign. You know, I had the eight eight. Uh, you know, how would we say it? I can't even think clearly on what they call that anymore. Octagon, I guess. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, you know, you cock it and you shoot it, and it, that shoots 38s, and that was a lot of fun. But it was great because some of the people that attended the class had very little or no firearms training. So we had our friend Ian, who is a British Special Forces officer who came, married an American, now is an American, and he loves liberty. He loves the Second Amendment and appreciates the freedom. And he was, you know, teaching along with Michael marksmanship training. And so, like, I was shooting... A handgun, and uh, I was, you know, a little hard on the on the trigger squeeze, so it caused the gun to kind of tip down to the left and down. And it was just little things that, you know, when you have somebody that knows and observes you, and it's like, yeah, just just a minor modification, and suddenly you're targeting it all right in right in the the range you want. Yeah, it's just uh, very very subtle things. Breathing has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. How you're holding the weapon, how how you're squeezing the trigger, how um, tight you're holding. Um, the butt of the weapon, you know, that can all these things can kind of throw it off. So it's uh, it's a subtle change, and you can go from being pretty bad to being pretty good. Yeah, and <laughs> women I, actually shoot better than men. They do. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. He they said uh, it was a husband and wife were helping. And he said, you know what? The women are so much easier to teach because they actually listen. The men come in and think they're John Wayne, or <laughs> and they see <laughs> movies, and they're they're not listening. You know, it's very funny. Yeah, yeah. I actually. Went out with my wife when um, I convinced her to take the concealed carry weapon course. Mm-hmm. And that morning when she got up, she told me, she said, there's nothing further that I would rather not do than this. There's nothing more that I would rather not do than this. And uh, we went there. You know, I was so convinced her. She, she goes out and we went out on the range afterwards. And uh, she was the only female. Everybody else was a male there. Uh-huh. And um, I got these uh, FNNs that shoot a 5.7 round. And uh, got two. They're just considered to be like a really nice handgun, mm-hmm. and um, they have little recoil. So I'd gotten two of them, one for my wife and one for me. And there she is. She's like putting everything right in the in the target in the center part of the you know the bullseye. Uh-huh. And I was shooting everything low. And I thought, oh, these are new weapons. You know, I haven't been sat in. So I, switched, you know, said, let's switch. So we switched. 
And then she takes the weapon I had, and boom, she's putting behind the target. So she's <laughs> like low. And, uh, you know, by the end of the day, she's like, I really like this. And all the guys are, like, looking at her going, okay, whatever, you know. And she was, like, hitting everything right in the middle, and I was consistently hitting low. So it, it is just a little... Um, just a subtle change that you can make and, and mm-hmm. adjust, but she never let me that down. Yeah, I know. In that moment, you you want to tell her to walk home, but she shoots better than you. So like, okay, yeah, exactly. maybe we'll just exactly. quietly go home and not mention this to anyone. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah, she's she's a black belt too, right? So mm-hmm. whenever we're flying somewhere, people say, "Are you carrying?" Because I have a uh, with, I have a military ID, and then I also have I was a police surgeon for a while and worked with the North Carolina Highway Patrol. And so I have a uh, law enforcement badge, and it actually says um, police surgeon on it. Um, so whenever I'm traveling, sometimes they'll see that in the scanner. And so yeah. they'll ask me, are you carrying any weapons? And I guess, you know, as a law enforcement, you can carry a weapon. You just have to declare it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my answer is always, no, the only, I'm not carrying anything. The only weapon is, you know, carrying my weapon right here. And I point to my wife. <laughs> and uh, so that's. That's my weapon. You know, she she shoots better than me, and she's a black belt, so you know, nice. I need protection for. Her. You know, I was thinking about an analogy with long term health, right? Making decisions now and how they impact your future. You know, and maybe not a minute from now, but how about a year or two or five or ten? In the same way, we learn on the range that a subtle, you know, fraction of a millimeter shift in the barrel, the mm-hmm. further out it goes, it, it you mm-hmm. know, ends up a mile off target. And you yeah. think about that, those things that we're doing wrong today may not seem like a big deal right now because, okay, yeah, I had a little symptom, but no biggie. And then by the time the years go go by, you're so far off of that, the mark in terms of health that you're devastated and wrecked with cancer versus being on target right now, and you're going that in a straight and narrow path, and you're ended up in that health zone you want to be in all the time in the future. You know, that's such an awesome point, Robert, because... Um, I saw a chiropractor today, and um, I happened to mention, like, my wife, her neck goes out and her back, and, you know, I always tell her, you know, you got to work out more. And as you know, I've been kind of traveling extensively the last few weeks, and so I haven't been keeping up with my own regular regime and uh, staying in a bed that's not my own bed. My neck was kind of out. So I went to see a chiropractor, and he was working on me, and I mentioned to him that, you know, I, I kind of realize and recognize that this is really brought on by my own lack of uh, staying consistent with my my own workout that I haven't done, you know, I've been sporadic, maybe just doing it two or three times, and I do it every day. And he said, well, what kind of workout do you do? So I told him, and, and I said, I do 165 push-ups every day, and I do, and I went through my routine. And he goes, so you do, like, you know, sets of 20 or something? I said, no, I do three sets of 55. And, um, and he says, you do three sets of 55, and the way he said it, I thought it was making it like, you know, it sounded too easy, and so I was like, well, you know, I do them on my knuckles, and I do them reverse <laughs> and then close, and then afterwards, I realized, wait a second, he, he thought that was hard, Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, you know, it probably does sound like for somebody who doesn't do push-ups, but it's a routine thing, but it's just what you just said, that low target off and then down mm-hmm. range, it's so far off. You do something on a consistent basis, and your body adjusts to it, and I'll tell you, Gaining it, like as you're going and you're, you're improving, that's one thing. But if you don't do it, how fast you lose it is incredible. Right. And I think that may be a function of, of as we age. I, I t- completely um, think it's ridiculous to say that, oh, you can't do this because you're such and such age. That's BS. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that. But I do believe that the ability to recover 
uh, may decrease and as we get older. And so to maintain it is more crucial because you can maintain it for forever, I believe. But yeah. if you don't keep up with it, and that's what I've noticed that when I do this stuff, I'm still doing it. I, you know, I, I kind of I may have strained my neck because I normally don't have a strain, but because I'm, I've got that thing in my head, this is what I do normally, and because I haven't kept up with it, and I'm doing it every third day as opposed to every day. Because when you do something every day, it just becomes routine. And the key thing is, it didn't start off like that. Even if you can, you know, you can't do 50, you can only do 40, you can only do 30 or 20 or 10 or five or one. Just do one, yeah. one push-up in a day, and and one setup, and then the next day you go for two, and next day you do three, and next day you do four, and you know if if one day it's that that five is too hard to do, the fine step down to four and just do it. But but every day you're making progress. It's one step at a time, and it's very very um, interesting that analogy that you made when you shoot, you know, just slight a millimeter off here is off by 50 feet at the end target when you're shooting, you know, 300 yards or whatever the case may be. And it's the same thing, just that taking that one little step today is going to bring you closer to your target as opposed to lack of that one little step every day. It's going to take you further and further away from your target, target being, of course, good health. Well, and, and the firearms analogy is really cool. We were learning over the weekend that, like, certain firearms have nuances that are different than others, and uh, they behave differently. And unless you utilize them, you know, very regularly so that you're, you know, you become one with it, uh, he, he, they were saying how uh, firearms like Glocks, which are very reliable guns, but they're not balanced in a certain way, and I experienced that because when it's fully loaded, it's very balanced, and then as, you, as each bullet leaves the chamber, you know, through, uh, the, the, the magazine empties, now the weight is so different, and unless you know to compensate for that, you're going to start having targets that are going to go, wait, that, that target was, there was nowhere near where I was trying to shoot, but the first one was dead on. So it's even the ability to be nimble in life, right, to adapt and adjust through that kind of practice. And that that is just, you know, it was amazing how many analogies were just kind of flowing through as we were doing the firearms training. I was saying, folks, you got to go out there and learn how to shoot. There's a lot, of, a lot about life you'll learn. Yeah, and I think um, there's no mistake that when you start looking at the the reason the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment, they could have had so many different things in there. When you're writing a charter or a constitution, you're writing a, a new organizational playbook, if you will, for a new country, how the forefathers, um, you know, it amazes me when you start reading history, how they were able, and you look at what's happening right now, and you see so many things that are happening now that they saw, they foresaw those things happening, that they created these amendments, and the, the priority of um, how these amendments were Listed. I think there's a. We, we don't recognize it, but I think now, now that I'm seeing what it is, I see. Oh, wow, the, how, the, the, the crystal ball was so clear. They knew exactly what was going to happen. They listed these amendments in a specific order. So to me, that order in which the amendments have been listed becomes even more crucial. So you start seeing the freedom of speech, you know, freedom. Uh, every, every one of the freedoms that are listed. Yes. You know, the the right to um, for, to carry firearms. There's a reason for that. To ensure that thought process where a government should be scared of the people and the people should not fear the government. And so there's so much, um, like Thomas, uh, Jeff, uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, statement that um, um, when, a, when a government, uh, when, when a people allow a government to dictate the foods they put in their mouths and the medicines they take into their bodies, their souls will soon be in the same sorry state as those who live under tyranny. Um, that, that, that's a quote, and you start reading some of the quotes from the forefathers. It's just amazing their insight.
website. I don't know whether they had like some type of download that came from Mars or some you know other I, galaxy that told them. Or? I think it was angelic, honestly. I mean, if, if you yeah. if you love liberty like we do, this is the place for health, freedom, and healing. Liberty, advanced medicine each and every week with Doctor Rasha Batari. You can check out links in the show notes, robertscottbell.com. It'll take you to d r b u t t a r dot com, Batar dot com. Back with more powerful healing after this. For those of you who are new to Advanced Medicine each and every week, I would encourage you to get and read The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away, international best-selling book by Dr. Rasha Bittar. Of course, I know we have a lot of long-time listeners. You've probably read it and given out multiple copies. That's awesome. But maybe a new fo- a new person here has not heard about it. You should uh, let them know about it as well. Now, we've got lots of uh, news stories. Maybe we'll get to some of them. I was just looking at over at one of the, let's see, connection between gut immunity and women. How about this thing? We've talked about this from time to time, but it's still a big issue, kidney disease, kidney health. Uh, you know, we're, we're told by, you know, modern medicine, maybe if you're not told, you just find out pretty quick that they don't have a lot of remedies for the kidneys. And, and, in fact, many of the medicines that they use are the result of poor kidney health that actually worsens kidney health. And there's a story about a lady, this is a mainstream newspaper, Washington Times, saying a woman fights off kidney disease and defies all statistics. How is it possible to do what the doctors don't know how to do? Right. So this, um, I, and I, I saw the overview of that, Robert, but I don't know what she, what she defied. I mean, I guess she was in and stage renal disease and defied the doctors and um, her kidneys are working fine now? Yeah, you know, she she was living with kidney disease for like 10 years, uh, you know, and then she was faced with, you know, what are you, you're going to need a kidney transplant, dialysis and transplant, you're done, right? And then instead she says, I'm not, I'm not doing dialysis, I'm going to Ecuador, right? And it's like, you're going to Ecuador. That's not like the place where all the hospitals and, and centers for kidney renal hemodialysis is happening. And she just she just left, and she just unplugged completely, because she lived so differently, so cleanly in Ecuador. It just like her body's health and kidney health reversed. Well, the, the and that's very interesting because think of what the kidneys do. They're obviously the one of the filters of the body, so you start putting in cleaner uh, input into the machine, and there's less stress on the filter, and so the filter is going to clean more efficiently and. Um, when somebody goes into renal failure or into early renal failure, it's basically the the amount of stuff coming out of their body is too much for the kidneys to handle or the kidneys, the filter, has been impaired for some reason. Um, We see this all the time when patients come in with um, early onset renal failure, BUM and creatinine getting elevated chronically. They've got some type of... uh, degenerative joint issue and they've been taking some non-steroidals for a number of years, you know, five, ten years, and the kidney function is starting to um, get worse. And 
when we start the process of chelation, in fact, for most people, you'll see a bump up in the BUN creatinine. And for doctors that don't understand how this happens, well, they, they kind of freak out. But in actuality, what you're doing is that chelator is pulling metals out. And it's pulling the metals out. It's going to cause an increase in the amount of the solute that's going through the kidneys. So you're going to actually increase the stress on the kidneys initially because you're getting all the low-lying fruit. And, in fact, because the chelator is getting concentrated within the renal parenchyma as it's coming through the kidneys, the kidneys have the highest concentration of these heavy metals, the, the actual tissue of the kidneys. So you're actually cleaning the filter out, and for that reason, there's a little bit more stress in the kidneys, but it only lasts for maybe about a week or two weeks. And then you see, and you have to just do it judiciously as, as a physician, you're monitoring this, and then you see the kidney function, you know, as it bumps up, starts coming down, and it goes down below the baseline and becomes even more efficient. And so we've had a number of patients throughout the last two decades plus that have had uh, early to moderate renal failure or that I've had people that were like on dialysis three times a week that were able to go to once a week. I've had people that were on dialysis once a week that actually came off dialysis. I've had people that were borderline getting ready to start on dialysis and we were able to get them back to normal kidney function. And it was the same type of story. And all we did was as we chelated them, it opened up the the kidneys to functioning better because right. we were able to reduce the the toxic load that was causing the kidneys, the filter, mm-hmm. to not work as efficiently. And that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, and now we're, we're not saying that everybody who's got kidney disease moves to Ecuador and eats differently and you'll have the same results. But it is a telling, uh, I'd say another lesson for us all, that sometimes the response to these so-called complex diseases are actually quite simple. And in many cases, uh, they might not require that kind of in, invasive procedure or even chelation, although it's good to know that there are docs out there that know how to do this because, my goodness, you know, if you're in that end-stage scenario and you end up like my dad who completely lost his function and then eventually died, uh, I, I, you know, I think it broke his spirit because he couldn't roam freely because he was hooked up to a, you know, a, a hemodialysis machine, like, I don't know, three, four days a week, whatever it was, for many, many hours. It just... It destroyed him, you know, on a spiritual mm-hmm. level. So uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. Dr. Rasha Bittar and I uh, just love talking about these things because, you know, a different way to look at life and healing and health and uh, bringing that power to heal back where it belongs to each and every one of you. The Robert Scott Wilson. In the health world to the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Advanced Medicine Monday continues here on the Robert Scott Bell Show with Dr. Rasha Bittar. Uh, DrBittar.com, of course, you can go there, RobertScottBell.com. We've got upcoming events. Dr. Bittar will be one of the featured speakers. I'm so excited to see him in Dallas, October 14th through 16th at the Truth About Cancer Ultimate Live Symposium. You've been traveling so much, and you're going to be traveling so much between now and then. You won't know what time zone you're on. Well, hopefully, um, hopefully it's going to be um, since it's going to be back closer to home. It's only one hour difference between the home time zone and Dallas, so it'll be actually I should know more. <laughs> you know, I should it should be closer to my own time zone, so it's, I don't think it'll be as bad. But yeah, you're right. It's sometimes it's been really off. You know, hours are you know you're on the other side of the world, and it makes a difference. So. Yeah, exactly. Now, we, we we talked about the kidney thing again, and I, I think it requires a little bit more detail 
because you said that initial stages on the IV chelation appropriate form will cause doctors that don't know this to be very concerned because creatinine levels may rise, which is usually considered a bad thing, right? And you're trying to help the kidneys. Uh, how do you know? I mean, what is it that for a doctor to know that oh, this is a normal process, that not to panic, and you'll move through this if you're doing it correctly? You know, Robert, again, this is one of those things. It, it's such a it's such an important question to bring up, and, and I know exactly why you, you're bringing this up, but I, I really believe that one of the biggest problems in medicine is that doctors have forgotten how the body works. People don't remember that the most important aspect of of medicine is physiology, and we never spend any time in physiology. And if you understand physiology, you truly understand physiology, then you have to reason through it. But what's happening to the body and and recognize that this is part and process of of the healing process, you know, the Herxheimer's response. For example, a patient takes something that's natural or takes some, anything, and they have a reaction to what they take, which you and I would recognize as a Herxheimer's response. But most doctors see it, oh, it's a negative, stop it, don't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. So you never get to the healing crisis. But that's the detoxification. That's the body actually responding to the therapy. And this happens all the time in medicine. So one of the things, like when we're talking about cancer, and I'm going to be talking about this at the at the conference, the Truth About Cancer conference. One of the components that when patients want to know about monitoring, we always look at the immune system. We always look at blood work. I never do any scans. I never do any physical studies, any anatomical studies. And the reason is very simple, that if you do an anatomical study during the actual treatment phase or even initially after the cessation of the treatment, you're going to get a visual depiction of something that would appear to be the cancer getting bigger. Yet, that is the furthest thing from the truth. If you look at a watermelon and um, you shoot it with a shotgun, the watermelon explodes. Now, if you take that video of the watermelon being shot with a shotgun as it explodes, what first happens to that watermelon in slow motion? What happens? Yeah, what happens to the watermelon in slow motion if you're watching it mm-hmm. and the shotgun shell hits it? What happens? Well, it, it kind of, well, how do you, <laughs> I think it, it expands. It, it expands. I mean, it just greatly expands. It's like before it like completely, the whole world through it. Yeah. Exactly. So, so when you look at that watermelon and you, you see the shotgun shell hit it and, and it just blows up and it disintegrates, but then you watch it slowly. As the shotgun shell hits it, you will see that watermelon expand and it looks like, oh my God, it's getting bigger and it's ballooning out. And before it uh, it explodes and disintegrates, right? Mm-hmm. But that phase of that um, watermelon as it's expanding and it looks like it's growth, that's what happens to the tumor. If I take a hammer and I hit somebody's knee, what's going to happen to the knee? It's going to swell up. That's a normal response. What happens to the cancer? If we hit the cancer, it's going to swell up. But on CAT scan, mm-hmm. it may appear that the cancer is getting bigger, and so people stop. But that cancer is right. actually not the problem. It's only the symptom. And what you're seeing, that tumor swelling up, you know, what they call is growing, is not growing, it's actually swelling up because we're hitting it effectively. And so these fundamental aspects of physiology that people, sent, the doctors have forgotten, you know, to think with their own minds and they're following, I mean, really doctors today are no, nothing more than glorified cooks. They're just following the cookbook and, and you know, <laughs> they're afraid that, you know, you're going to, you, what we're talking about is kind of like the guy who developed Reese's peanut butters, right? He tripped with the chocolate in his hand, <laughs> landed in peanut butter, and he made Reese's peanut butter cups. But, but there's, there's too much fear of developing a new taste or a new flavor or a new whatever. Right. And that's what medicine's about. That's why they call it an art, right? Because it's an, it's, it's artistic. And the reason we call our patients patients is because they have to be patient so that the doctors get the results. So, 
Oh, man. So, so much for that. No, no, it, it's a great way to describe it. Also, I want to bring up, because I still get a lot of uh, inquiry from people about the hepatitis C scenario, and, you know, I've disputed that they've actually isolated the hep C, but, it, you know, on one in one sense it matters. In another sense, okay, let's just deal with what the docs are saying, and we'll acknowledge there is a lot of liver problems in those scenarios that I'm not disputing. So when we go after, let's say, a pathogen burden, you know, and I've had many physicians that work with silver, as, as have you, and some do even intravenous flooding of the system. And what we see is uh, if they if the docs are going by the numbers, right, they're going to get these analytical tests, what are the viral load counts, and they're going up into the millions, and these doctors are just, for lack of a better term, freaking them, the patients out over this, these numbers. And every time I ask the patients who are on this, this protocol, if they're on a real holistic protocol, how are you feeling, right? The numbers say one thing, but how are you feeling? I feel great. I haven't felt this great in years. I said, you know, and, and working with physicians on this, they, they, they figured out what you did. There was a Herxheimer response there. And it wasn't that it was, they were feeling bad because of it. It was just a matter of the physiology catching up with the circulating debris, whatever it was, having to get out of the body. And I said, well, we encourage you to open up those pathways of elimination wide. Eventually, those, if you rely on those numbers for tests, wait a little longer, go back in the test, and this precipitous drop to almost zero. And you're like, if you had reacted to the numbers initially, you would say, oh, my gosh, we got to get these people on chemo right now. They're going to die. But the patients are confused because they're feeling great. And so to your point, the doctors have forgotten that these patients are not just a series of numbers on a chemical analytical test. Yeah, that's, that's a very, very uh, crucial point as well because we and medicine tend to treat numbers and not the patient. And those numbers are providing a guidance to us so we understand whether our treatment's effective or not or how to adjust, but we're not treating numbers. And I have to tell people all the time when patients say, well, my glucose is off, you know, and I look at the glucose and, you know, the, if you just ate, I mean, this is a perfect example, Robert. Mm-hmm. When people get blood work done, okay, they're asked to fast. It, mo- almost all doctors want a patient to fast for 12 hours or 24 hours. Don't eat right. anything or drink anything after um, 10 o'clock tomorrow, um, tonight, so that when right. we draw your blood fa- tomorrow. Fasting blood glucose, they call it. Some people probably right. know about that, yes. Right. And in fact, it's not just the blood glucose. They want fasting blood work done so they can mm-hmm. look at your lipids, this, that, the other. My question is how many average people, not you or I, mm-hmm. but how many average people, because I mean, I, I believe that fasting one, one day a week is a phenomenal thing. And of course, during the month of Ramadan, we, you know, yeah. from a traditional religious standpoint, I fast for a month. But how many normal, everyday people fast for 12 hours? Yeah, no, the, I, think, I, I, I think in the West, I think very few people, other than the time they sleep, fast right. for more than two or three hours, right? And and right. I, I remember being hypoglycemic. I couldn't last. That's right. That's exactly right. And so the point is that if we, most people don't fast for 12 hours, and that's not a normal physiological thing for most people, then why are we checking our blood work when we're fasting? Don't, don't, wouldn't you want to know what is the person's normal right. blood uh, test? I wondered about that because if you put somebody that never fasts for 12 hours on a 12-hour fast, do you think their body is going to be used to that and will react with a, a normal metabolic you know, response or, or a panicked metabolic response? Exactly. And so it's almost like saying, okay, look, I don't want to see the real numbers. I just want to see something that makes me as a doctor feel good. So just fast for 12 hours so I can see what your blood looks like at that non-physiological state for you. And I'll get a mm-hmm. false sense of security, and then I'll tell you you're okay, and everybody you know, goes on with hunky-dory life. You know, I never check blood fasting. I, I, right. I just don't want to see that because it doesn't tell me anything. I want to know what is this, what is the normal state of blood. And 
And it's amazing, you know, when we have people come in with baseline blood work and then six months later when we do the blood work and, and how normal it is. I mean, my, my favorite thing, and I say it quite frequently, I'm blessed that I can say it quite frequently, is when I'm talking to a patient, I can say, you have sickeningly healthy blood, <laughs> blood work. <laughs> sickeningly healthy. That's great. And, uh, and do you self-defense analogies because those are fun to do. It's sort of like someone who has never been trained in self-defense, and you say, all right, here we're going to test you. We're going to throw you know, three criminals to attack you right now. Let's see how you respond. Right? How do you think they're going to respond? Right? They've, they've never, you know, versus someone who is a black belt. He's like, okay, you know, here's their normal physiological response. They've been trained. Their body is there. You're practiced just like you've been doing your push-ups every day as opposed to one. I mean, it's like, hello, where's the common right. sense? Right, right. That's true because, yeah, somebody's going to have three criminals and they don't know how to defend themselves. You know, most, most people in that situation are going to turn and run. And that's not what you want the, you know, you want the body to be able to deal with it. I mean, in fact, exercise is a perfect example of that. The reason a person should exercise mm-hmm. is that your body's ability, you're preparing your body for self-defense. It's really what it comes down to. And it's not self-defense like, you know, you're going to deal with a criminal or something, but God forbid you're in, in a situation where it's going to tax your physiological uh, parameters. Mm-hmm. So there are numerous cases of people that, like, for example, there was a bodybuilder I remember and um, he was a he was a what they call a CrossFit trainer. So he was he he bodybuilt himself, but he was also into endurance performance like uh, triathlons and half marathons and that type of stuff. And he was involved with this car wreck. It was a it was a, a car wreck that should have killed him, but because of his physiological strength, his body strength, his structural strength, he was able to withstand that. And similar thing to like when when the person runs, you know, extreme amount of running or whatever it is, you're actually conditioning so that if your heart goes into that situation where it's, you know, God forbid you have a heart attack, or God forbid you had a period of uh, lack of blood flow to a certain part of the heart, your heart has been conditioned to be in that state of um, lack of oxygen because if you're running, I'm taking to an extreme, but that's actually what... Um, extreme athletes will go through because they're conditioning their body to deal with it. In fact, in ranger school, in the military, in SF school, they take people through, you know, it's almost physiological brutality because, you know, people will lose 30, 40 pounds when they come out of ranger school and they will have, like, infections of their feet and, you know, fungal infections because their bodies have been stressed to that point. They only get one. They'd cut your meals down to two meals a day, then you get one meal a day, then you don't, you only get one MRE every other day and you're put into uh, conditions of sleep deprivation and all these things to physiologically stress the body. People say, well, this is cruel. Why would anybody do this kind of training? The reason is that, God forbid, you get behind enemy lines, your body's been conditioned to deal right. with that type of situation so you can survive otherwise you're not going to survive so exercise is that same type of thing you push your body to limits every on a a consistent basis every day every other day every third day whatever it is and so that when if your body does come under some type of uh, it it doesn't it doesn't kill you right you already been made stronger all right we got to take a break we'll be back to wrap up advanced medicine great concepts analogies things that make sense here with dr rasha bittar Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. So what's your state of health? What is the word you were looking for? I had to cut you off because we went to break there. This conditioning, we want the body to, we want you to condition your body is what we're talking about. Yeah, conditioning. And again, 
Uh, I'm going to bring up my dad's case. God rest his soul. Love him dearly. Uh, you know, there were things that happened in his life that were off the mark just by, a, you know, enough that years later his kidneys failed. It didn't happen overnight. He had issues, kidney stones in his past, uh, pancreatitis in his past. And I can look at, you know, my own dad, his health. He did a lot of good things as I learned a lot of good things. He didn't do all of them. And so it, it wasn't like the first time he, met, he messed up and did something that his body was not good for his body that he was done. It was like all those years later when you, you know, it looked like you were only a millimeter off then and then you're a mile off the target by that point in time. And it was like, you can't handle the crisis at that point. As you said, your conditioning wasn't good enough to withstand as much as our bodies can adapt. Exactly. And, you know, part of parcel with that analogy you made about shooting and just a slight adjustment, a millimeter adjustment here is going to make a big difference downrange. You know, that, those type of changes that you're making in your life, too, that's also conditioning. You're conditioning mm-hmm. yourself to make that small change today that will become a, have a big effect tomorrow. And something that um, it's been a great phrase that I have uh, used in my own life whenever I'm doing something that's hard, and especially for my kids when I'm ta- training them to do something and it's hard for them, I remind them once difficult, now easy. Once difficult, now easy. Yeah. And the thing, that, the basically that's just all that means is that no matter what you do, no matter how easy somebody else makes it look, it was once difficult for them, but they kept on doing it. They practiced it, repetition. They conditioned themselves to make it look easy. So whatever you feel right now is once difficult, it will become easy. Just keep on doing it. And, and at that point, you get now easy. So just remember that in any aspect, whether it's eating right, whether it's, you know, staying away from carbonated drinks, whether it's reducing mm-hmm. your alcohol intake, whether it's, you know, exercising, whatever it is, once difficult, now easy. Yeah, and it can be working in the backyard garden. You you know, you awkwardly started because you really weren't sure of the process. You know stuff grows, but, you know, how do you prepare the soil? I mean, many of the things that we like to, uh, you know, have people do as a a, a, a matter of course or, or a natural extension of their arm, much like we're talking about even firearms becoming a natural extension of your arm for self-defense, these things don't happen the first time, even though you might hit the target and dead on the first time. And then as the bullets leave the chamber and the balance of the gun shifts, you didn't know that. And so you, you go out with all the confidence in the world because you shot once. <laughs> and then in the real world, oh, it doesn't work that way. That's exactly right. And so a learning process and to um, understand and appreciate that process, like you use that analogy with the gardening, mm-hmm. um, there's a process that your body starts to get used to, and there's a process your mind gets used to. There's a it's a it's a habit that starts to form, and before you know it, it, it has become that habit, and your and your body almost is on autopilot. That's one reason it's so difficult for people to form a good habit because it takes a repetition. It's a lot easier to form bad habits. Why? Well, it's the same same duration. It's just Bad habits are usually due to apathy, uh, lack of taking action, and good habits are are you taking action. But remember, they say it takes 21 days to form a habit. So 21 days is what your goal should be. And I tell people just to be on the safe side, go 28 days. So just do something for a month every day, and then you'll find it's actually difficult to stop it. So it's a good habit or a bad habit, whatever it is. If you do it for 30 days, you're going to form it. So just take that. All you need to do is put the effort forward and uh, overcome that inertia for, for 28 days and you'll be on autopilot after that. Yeah, it doesn't take that long, but that journey of a you know a zillion miles begins with uh, that one little step. And as I said, you know, you might not be perceiving what life will be like at 70 or 80 or more years from now. Uh, would you still be here? Could you still be here? Well, it depends on what you do today. 
uh, by and large, if the plan is to hang out for as long as you can to see your kids and grandkids and all that stuff. But uh, what is the purpose for your visit to this planet? And finding that, because it isn't just about, hey, I wonder how long I can stay here. It's like, what are you doing while you're here? You want to be here long? What are you going to be doing? You better be interested in what you're doing, or you're like, why am I still here? (laughs) That's a very good point. I mean, purpose has everything to do with it. If you don't have the purpose, um, you're not going to have that motivation. In fact, they've done studies on this. You know, when men retire, I think the average age for a man who retires after he retires is within like three three years or five years, they die. And uh, the people that, of course, retire but have hobbies and they keep up with it, that's not the same case. But the the brain has a RASCON uh, mm-hmm. mechanism, the reticular activating system control mechanism. That's a goal-seeking mechanism. So if you don't have a goal, if you don't have a target mm-hmm. that you're moving towards, um, there's no reason to live and people will actually waste away. So that's yeah. a very good point as well. Well, good thing. At least we know one of the things we're here to do, Dr. Batar, and it's time to tell the folks. The power to heal is yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show.